the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Thank you, son, for the opportunity uh, to preach here at uh, home again. Uh, But I have to be honest tonight, I feel somewhat inadequate uh, having to follow Brother Mike Collins. Um, If you didn't get a chance to hear his message last week, you need to do that. That was an incredibly convicting message. And uh, I feel like the proverbial donkey at the Kentucky Derby. I'm a little outclassed. But uh, here's the good news. I was reading this morning and God used a donkey one time. And who knows? He, uh, He may just do it again. The book of Lamentations, as the name suggests, records the lament of the prophet Jeremiah during or soon after the destruction of Jerusalem in approximately 586 B.C. Jeremiah's sense of grief was heightened by the fact that Jerusalem's inhabitants had been warned by the preaching of Jeremiah himself that judgment was coming if they did not repent of their sins. If they did not get their spiritual acts together, if you will, then they were going to suffer chastisement under the mighty hand of God. And for 40 years, Jeremiah had prophesied of coming judgment and was scorned by the people as a doomsday preacher. Some of you are familiar and aware of the fact that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And that is certainly for good reason. He preached the word of God to the people of God, and he did it with a broken heart. Jeremiah once said, oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. It seems, as you read through the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations, that Jeremiah was more burdened about the spiritual condition of the Jews than they were themselves. And that is often the case even today. The pastor sometimes is more burdened for the people than they are for themselves. He sees patterns of behavior forming in people's lives that he knows is not healthy. And it burdens him. Sometimes he senses things in the church Maybe a spirit of apathy or a spirit of complacency. And it burdens him. 
But at the same time, others don't see it. And others don't sense it. And that burdens him. As you read through this short book, you get the idea that what made the people weep was not the sin they had committed, but rather the consequences of that sin. In other words, the punishment of their sin was a greater grief to them than their sin itself. So with that as a background, let's begin reading tonight in verse 40. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 40. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts with our hands unto God in the heavens. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. One should go back to the end of verse 40. That phrase there at the close of verse 40. And turn again to the Lord. If you write in your Bibles, I want you to write out beside that phrase one word. And that is the word revival. We'll talk more about it here in a moment or two. But that pretty much sums up what revival is all about. It is a turning again to the Lord. The implication is that there had been a time when they were closer to the Lord than they presently were. And so they needed to get back to that place. Now I'm going to venture a guess, but that describes... Someone here, as we approach the end of summer, I'm going to guess, based on 40 plus years of ministry experience, that there is someone here tonight, or perhaps a number of someones here tonight, Who, if you were honest, you would say, I am not as close to the Lord as I was before summer started. And thus, there is a need of revival. I've often defined revival this way. It is the moving of God's Spirit through the power of His Word. To the hearts of his people that resurrects to new life those areas that have been lying stagnant, dormant, or out of balance and results in new love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Now let's go back and 
And break that down for a moment. Revival is the moving of God's spirit. The songwriter certainly had it right when he said, All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. Listen, revival is, is, is more than being stirred emotionally. Are you listening? Revival is about being changed spiritually. The moving of God's spirit through the power of his word. Not my word, not Pastor Tyler's word or Pastor David's word or Pastor Tanner's word or Pastor Mike Collins' word. It is the moving of the Spirit of God through the power of God's Word. It is God's Word that changes lives. You need to be thankful tonight. We need to be thankful tonight for a pastor that preaches the Word. The moving of God's Spirit through the power of His Word to the hearts of His people. You heard me say many, many times from this pulpit and this platform that at the heart of every problem is what, church? A problem of the heart. And it could also be said that at the heart of every revival is a revival of the heart. Who among us tonight, myself included, is not in need of an occasional time of reviving. A, 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 a resurrection or, or, or bringing to life, if you will, things in our life that we have allowed to become stagnant or dormant. We're talking about areas of our lives that have fallen asleep, that have become inactive, that are sluggish, that are dull. What are those areas in your life tonight? Is it prayer? Is it Bible reading? Is it worship? I tell you this often when I have the opportunity, you need to be thankful for the worship that goes on in Fellowship Baptist Church. Because it's not like this everywhere. God has put something together here that is extraordinary. And we ought to be thankful for that. Maybe it's in the area of ministry. You still show up, you still do your thing, but the truth is, throughout the summer, you've just become sluggish. Come on, you're just sluggish and dull, and you just show up, and you do your thing, and you go home, and there's no vim, vigor, or vitality about you. How about your response to the preaching? When's the last time... You've been genuinely convicted in any areas of these areas of your life 
And listen, and responded publicly. I am old-fashioned about this, I'm sure, but there is still something to be said about God's people coming and taking a knee in a public service and pouring their heart out to God. If nothing else, listen, if nothing else, it humbles us. And there's not a person in here tonight, including myself, that could not stand to be humbled every now and then. And then let me ask you this before we get into the message. What have you allowed to get out of balance over the summer? How about your giving? Have you used what belongs to God for your own purposes? How about your time? I mean, look back at your, your, your life this summer and how much of time, how much time did you take for yourself as opposed to how much time you gave God? Listen, the mission to help people find and follow Jesus doesn't take the summer off. And neither should we. So as we dig into our text tonight, there are three things that I believe are key to experiencing personal revival. First of all, we must personally examine our ways. Look what Jeremiah said. Let us search and try our ways. The word search suggests that something is hidden. It's there in our hearts. But listen, it's not going to be revealed by just a shallow, superficial, cursory examination of our lives. Yeah, I'm good. It's like this. I can be at home and I'm looking for something. It's like, Katie, where's whatever? Well, it's in this or this drawer or such and such cabinet. And so I walk over there and I open the drawer, I open the cabinet and I look. Katie, it's not here. And so she comes in there with a very sweet spirit. And she opens the cabinet or she opens the drawer and she starts moving things. And lo and behold... The next thing I hear is, here it is. (laughs) Thank you, Brother Doug. What just happened? Listen, listen, here's what happened. She was willing to dig and I wasn't. She was willing to do more. She was willing to look deeper. She was willing to look closer. She was willing to do what I was unwilling to do. And let's be honest tonight. Most of us, if that was all we were to do, just do a shallow and superficial examination of our lives, most of us here tonight would come away feeling pretty good about ourselves because on the surface, we are good. Hey, listen, I I think I'm a pretty good guy. 
I'm a good husband, I think. I'm an awesome papa. I'm a decent dad. I work hard. I provide for my family. I pay my bills. I'm a good neighbor. I keep my yard up. There are a lot of things that, that I do well. I don't cheat on my taxes. I pay them when I'm supposed to pay them. Begrudgingly, but I do. Sounds like I'm going to be paying for some other things along the way now too. You're welcome. I didn't mean to say that. Well, I did mean to say it, but it wasn't in my notes. Maybe that's another message for another time. But here's what I'm saying. Most of us look at our lives and we are pretty good. Can I remind you what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9? He said, the heart is deceitful. Oh, mercy. This is a whole other message too. Listen, don't ever, don't ever tell anybody, just follow your heart. Mm, that's bad advice. That's bad. Every time I see somebody post that, oh, oh, honey, just follow your heart. I want to go, no, do not follow your heart. Because your heart is deceitful. It's, it's, it, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? No, 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 no. Don't follow your heart. Follow his heart. Follow his word. There's not a problem you have that his word will not address. In either, either direct, thus thou, thou shalt do this, or at least by principle. Now, what's interesting about the word deceitful is that it's closely connected to the Hebrew word for Jacob. And if you know anything about Jacob, you know that he was a trickster. He was a deceiver. And my friend, so was our heart. My heart is forever telling me I'm okay. I'm good. I'm all right. And then God's word and God's spirit, they chime in and they often tell a different tale because they tell the truth. God's word and God's spirit tell the truth about all of us. They often tell the, a tale of hidden sin and hidden desires and hidden agendas, and hidden addictions, and hidden motives, and hidden hatred, and hidden envy, and hidden bitterness, and hidden selfishness, and on and on it goes. And so my question to you tonight is this, are you willing to let the Spirit of God shine the light of God's Word into the deepest, darkest crevices of your heart and reveal what is really there. If we want to experience our own personal revival, then that is exactly what has to happen. We must personally examine our ways. And once those things are brought to the surface, we must then sincerely 
confess our sins. The emphasis being on the word sincerely. You see, it's one thing to confess our sin and just say, yeah, I I blew it. But it's another thing altogether different to mean it. The people of Jeremiah's day were grieving, but only because of the pain their sin had caused. They weren't grieving over their actual sin. Look at verse 41 again. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. A lot of times... The Hebrew people would would pray with their hands uplifted to heaven. But I like that Jeremiah reminds them and us tonight that uplifted hands alone is not a sign of sincerity. Did you see what he said? He said, let us lift up our heart with our hands. Jeremiah was emphasizing the need for sincerity. There was no more room for spiritual games. The nation was in ruins. And the only hope they had was to come clean with God and agree with Him as to the nature of of their sin. And that's what it means to confess our sin. I'm not, listen, I'm not talking about going to another man somewhere and, and telling him every evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty thing you've done. There's nowhere in the Word of God that instructs us to do that, that guides us to do that. That's not biblical. Jesus is our priest. And that's who we go to. I don't have to go to my pastor and they let my pastor take my, my, my confessions to God. I go to God on my own. Not because I'm worthy, but because Jesus paved the way. What did John say? He said, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unfortunately, we have misunderstood this verse and have reduced confession to a mere admission of wrongdoing or an admission of failure. But that's not really what the word confess means. Confession is not just putting a post-it note on your, on your behavior and, and labeling, labeling it S-I-N. No, no, it's about calling it what it is. It's about agreeing with God. That it is every bit as evil, wicked, mean, bad, and nasty as this book says it is. And we don't make excuses for it. We don't try to justify it. We don't rationalize it. We don't try to explain it away. If it's sin, it's sin. If revival is going to come to our hearts, we must get honest with God. Look at verse 42 again. Jeremiah called the people out on two specific 
sins. He said we have transgressed and have rebelled. To transgress, a simple explanation is this. It is to step out of bounds or to go beyond. It is to go beyond the limits set forth in God's word. And listen, church, to do it knowingly and willfully. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3 in your minds and in your memories to Adam and Eve in the garden. God showed them the the million-acre vegetable garden. And he said, this is all yours. It's all yours. Just don't eat of that tree. Is that not what he said? It's all yours. Love it. Enjoy it. Live in it. But don't eat of that tree. Would you agree with me tonight that God's boundaries were clear? Very clear. And yet what did Adam and Eve do? They chose to willfully and knowingly step out of bounds. And that's what the people of Israel were doing. Listen, they weren't ignorant of God's boundaries. God had clearly defined his boundaries for holy living. And by the way, he gave them plenty of room. People say, oh, I don't be a Christian because you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. Listen, I don't have time to worry about what I can't do. I don't have time to do all the things I can do. Listen, church, God... God has given us plenty of room in this book to enjoy life. God has broad boundaries for us. But yet we, we in our stubbornness and our rebellion, we're like a little kid. Mom says, don't touch that. And he, I mean, come on, God has some clear thou, thou shalt nots in his word. And then he has some also things taught by principle and precept that are pretty clear to understand that as God's people, we ought not do that. And yet what do we do? Come on. And we do it knowingly and we do it willfully. We know we're supposed to be in church. What do we do? We know we're supposed to tithe and give to the Lord. It's in the book. Come on. We know we're supposed to love each other and treat each other good. And, and I go on and on and on and on, but I think you get the point. We know what's right, and yet we willfully and knowingly do what is wrong. So again, God has given us plenty of room. Listen, God's boundaries are no more wide nor narrow than his word. And there's plenty of room in here to enjoy life. 
So why then do we insist on living out of bounds? I'll I'll tell you partly why it is. Listen, it's because the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. And he convinces us that we're missing out on so much. Because we're content with living within what he perceives to be the boring, restrictive, confining limits of Scripture. He's a liar. Yeah, your, your, your work buddies and, and work gals come in on Monday and, and, and talk about all they did outside of, out of bounds. And you're like, well, I'm just kind of chilled out at home all weekend. And the devil says, girl, you're missing out. You are missing out. Girl, listen to me. The devil is a liar. He's a big fat liar. You're not missing out. As long as you live in bounds, you're not missing anything. But sin and regret and shame, that's all there is outside of the boundaries of the Word of God. Can I get a witness right there? Not only did Jeremiah call the people out for transgressing, for stepping out of bounds, but he also called them out for being rebellious. He said, we've transgressed and we've rebelled. That means they've been obstinate. That means they've been stubborn. And, and, and so they're, they're over here living out of bounds. And the man of God is saying, hey, come back in bounds. Come back where you're supposed to be. Come back in, in, into God's blessing. Come back into God's best for your life. And we just obstinately and stubbornly. Stay right over here. There ain't no preacher going to tell me how to live my life. Well, newsflash, it's really not the preacher telling you. It's the Word of God. Well, I just don't see anything wrong with it. I don't see anything wrong with going 10 miles over the speed limit either. But somebody has said, somebody in authority has said, that is wrong. And so I can either get in bounds and take it down to five over. I'm sorry, I can either come back in bounds, drop it down 10, or I can obstinately, you tracking with me? I can obstinately stay over here, and I might get by with it two or three or six or eight or ten times. But at some point, it's going to catch up with me. And it's not because I didn't know I was out of bounds. It's because I refused to get back inbounds. Well, I'll just take my chances. Hey, listen, it's one thing to take your chances speeding. It's another thing to take your chances 
living a life that is dishonoring and dis, disobedient to God. And Jeremiah said that's where God's people were. They were out of bounds and they were refusing to come back in bounds. And then I want you to note the beginning of verse 40 real quick. He said, let us search and try our ways. I would submit to you tonight that there is a difference between acts of sin and ways of sin. Now stay with me. We commit acts of sin every day. That is, we, we do something or say something or think something every day, at least I do, that takes me out of bounds every day. And I'm not excusing that. Please understand tonight, I'm not excusing that in any way. But when we find ourselves out of bounds, we need to confess that to God and get right with Him. Because if we don't, our acts of sin become ways of sin. That's what happened with God's people in Jeremiah's day. Their acts of sin went unconfessed and unforsaken and eventually turned into ways of sin. In other words, their sinfulness became a way of life. How might that play out in our everyday lives? It's one thing to lust and to confess it as such. And seek forgiveness. But it's another thing to lust. And let it go. And lust again. And let it go. And lust again. And let it go. Until you find yourself consumed. Are you listening tonight? Consumed with lust. And living a lustful lifestyle. It's one thing to be offended by someone and to become angry with them. It happens. We're all human. At that point, we should confess our sin and seek forgiveness and ask for God's grace to act the right way toward that person. It's in the book. But instead, this is often what happens. Someone gets offended. They become angry. They refuse to confess it. And then they develop a lifestyle of hatefulness and bitterness. You ever known somebody like that? I mean, they're just hateful. They're just bitter. Well, have a good day. Well, I doubt it. All right, have a terrible day. Well, I will. I mean, they're just hateful and bitter. Why? Because I would guess that somewhere down the line, someone did something to them. Something didn't go their way and they got offended and they didn't handle it right. And now that little act of disobedience has now become just a way of life for them. It's who they are. It's one thing to get behind financially, get to behind financially and take what rightfully belongs to God. And then be convicted of that and, 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 and been made to feel guilty of that because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and confess it and say, God, I'm sorry. But it's another thing altogether to ignore the conviction and do it again and ignore the conviction and do it again. And now before long, you've become a perpetual God robber. 
So let me ask you tonight, wherever you have you allowed acts of sin or where are you allowing acts of sin to become ways of sin by refusing to step back in bounds? Even though you know God wants you to and is calling you to. Revival comes when we personally examine our ways, sincerely confess our sins, and finally, when we wholeheartedly turn to the Lord. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, Jeremiah called the people out for not being sincere in their desire to return to the Lord. Oh, they were lifting up their hands to the Lord and praying. But their heart wasn't in it. Jeremiah said, listen, we've got to get serious about this. This has got to come from our hearts or it's all in vain. And so it is with us. We cannot come to the altar on Sunday to repent of sin we we committed on Saturday and fully intend to commit again on Monday. That's not repentance. That's not honesty. That's not sincerity. And that will not lead to revival. Sincere repentance is when we come to loathe our sin as much as God does. And we willingly acknowledge it as such. And we purposely turn from it to God. I love what Paul said about the Thessalonians. He said they turned from idols to the living God. Let me close tonight with this challenge. You men have heard me make this challenge before at the event conference. I think one of the bravest, I think you would agree with me, that one of the bravest men in the Bible has to be David. And there are a lot of brave men. But man, David's got to be right up there at the top. As just a young boy with a a sling and five smooth stones, he stood before the nine-foot giant of of the Philistines, Goliath. And though small in stature, He was great in faith. And with the Lord's help, he slew the giant that day. And by the way, that's after killing a lion and a bear with just his hands. David was a brave man. And perhaps some here tonight would say that was probably, Goliath was probably David's finest hour. David's bravest moment. But I would respectfully argue with that. To me, David's bravest moment in his whole life was when he prayed these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I wonder how many of you would be willing tonight to pray that prayer. Revival will not come to your heart or mine until we are willing to be that open and that vulnerable before God. As we bow our heads tonight, right, right where we're at, still seated. I'm going to read those words again. And I want to challenge you. And please do not, do not do this if you're not sincere, if you don't mean it. But I want to challenge you tonight as we come to the close of summer that honestly may have taken its toll on your life spiritually. I want to challenge you to make those words of David your personal prayer to God. So right there where you're at, right there in your seat tonight, in your heart, Pray this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We stand to our feet with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the pastor to come. Heavenly Father.